0: tonight I want to talk to you about biblical thinking about social justice, social justice. And our nation, our nation right now is going through a cultural upheaval and it really threatens to destroy every part of America that I, that I know. Now I was born in 1969, so I, I didn't live through the sexual revolution, the free love movement of the 1960s. But what is happening right now in America, I think is is even more dangerous, more destructive than even the fruits of of that era. And what is happening in America, it's it's not confined to our shores because nearly every country is under attack by social engineers that are determined to bring in the great reset. You may have heard that phrase. And in the words of Barack Obama, to fundamentally transform not just America, but really Really, the entire world. Um, yesterday, I'll, I'll just mention this. Yesterday, the um, the verdict for Derek Chauvin, the, Derek, the um, police officer in Minnesota, uh, was announced. Uh, you may have seen the news. The police officer found guilty of, of three counts, and I, I don't know how this works. I, I think second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and, and manslaughter, some kind of charge. Now, I didn't follow that case very closely. In fact, I, I was telling him... I I never even watched the video. Some of you probably did. I saw little snippets of it, but I I never watched the entire video. And so so I I don't have a justifiable strong opinion on, on, on the merits of the case. I do know that he had to be found guilty either way because everybody from Maxine Waters to LeBron James knew that he was guilty before he even had a trial. Okay, now, now, that, now that's and, and so no matter which way the verdict was going to go, we knew that Black Lives Matters and, and Antifa was going to go on a rampage through cities and burn businesses to the ground, and and I personally believe that the danger that we are seeing in Chicago and Minneapolis, I, I believe that that's going to get a little closer to home, to, to be honest with you. Uh, I I believe also that the mass shootings, 54 mass shootings since the 1st of January. I believe that the mass shootings, that all of the constant news about black men being shot by white officers, all of the riots, I, I believe that all of that is by design. I believe that it is a blueprint to try to destroy America in order to remake America. And the upheavals that we used to watch on the nightly news happening in France and Berlin and Germany and Europe, it now takes place on a nightly basis in our own cities. Tonight, tonight there will be mobs in Seattle and Portland and maybe Chicago and they're gonna be burning and fighting with police. But when you think about it, every institution in America, from from large corporations to, to the news media to the Democratic Party, to to, to professional sports, to Hollywood, to liberal professors in universities are all promoting that, they're all encouraging that. And the idea is that America is a systemically racist and oppressor nation and it must be radically overturned in order to right the injustices that, that a very pervasive mindset believes that there is. The liberal philosophies that is, that, that is being preached and practices in the socialist enclaves of Europe are also being preached and practiced in our own universities in America. Now, I, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom, and this, that's not what this is about. But there are very strong enemies we know attacking the church and attacking Christianity. But they're attacking our very society, our very life as well. The very fabric of our republic is being ripped in places and your world is changing before your very eyes. And when the world adopts a message, whether that message is evolution or abortion or humanism or Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, then they preach it from the rooftops. And because the whole world lieth in darkness and is under the power of the wicked one, That's why you see government and corporations, news media and entertainment. It's all under the same control, and they all join voices to to force their message down your throat. And they demand, they demand that everybody fall in line with what they preach. They demand groupthink. You You dare not dissent, and you dare not think outside the box censorship, big tech censorship, we we see that. Now, you're not allowed to have a different opinion. Now, Colossians 2, there's a verse here that that we'll just use as an anchor for our thoughts tonight. But it's verse number 8, and you know this verse. But Paul says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That is the only time that the word philosophy is found in the Bible. There are some who would say that all philosophy is wrong. But Paul doesn't say that. He simply warns against philosophies which are nothing but vain deceit, philosophies which are after the tradition of men, philosophies which are after the rudiments of the world. Philosophy is often built upon a subjective interpretation. We talked about subjective and objective Sunday morning. Philosophies are often self-serving, and they are a vehicle to push a preset idea. And I don't know what particular philosophy that Paul was warning the Colossians church against in this chapter, but he does cast philosophies in a very strong warning. Philosophies are often used often the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, two very long chapters that tell us the folly of the wisdom of the world. And I would tell you tonight that every voice outside of Christianity is a preacher of philosophies and ideologies and worldviews and vain deceit, but they are not dealers in truth. If you think of how many ideologies that the world pushes as a truth, and they would die to defend whether it's evolution, whether it is abortion, and what you and I are called to do, is to submit every philosophy, every such idea to the scriptures. What does the Bible say about this? And the Bible does have something to say about it. And what you and I are supposed to do is we're supposed to know the truth and we apply it vigorously to everything that we hear and don't ever trust or allow a godless newscaster to tell you what to think. In fact, even in these days, the church, I use that phrase loosely, has gotten lazy in preaching truth and applying truth and calling out lies. Now, now we're independent Baptists, so, so we, we, we would not be familiar with the inner workings of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I may say more about this if, if we continue this. The Southern Baptist Convention is corrupt to the core. And one of the major problems in a lot of those churches is that the preachers in those pulpits are basically saying the same thing as the news media pundit. The big names that you may not be familiar with, but but Matt Chandler and and David Platt and, and J.D. Greer, the president of the convention, they are big proponents of everything that I will oppose tonight. They're preaching the same thing. And what we need is we need a revival of thinking. We have lost the ability to think, to think critically, how to hear something and evaluate whether that is true or not, and not to be swept away just because we don't know how to think about something. And by the way, you're dealing with a world that doesn't just believe a lie, but they've lost the ability to think critically about that lie. Everybody from the basketball player to the Hollywood star is out there saying that we are a systemically racist nation. And tonight is not about that at all. But they're out there saying that we are that America is a systemically racist nation, but they haven't had an original thought ever in their life. In fact, Lenin had a word for them. He called them useful people. Idiots. That's what Lenin would call them because they've been brainwashed, but they're convinced that they are brilliant. And they believe that if they shout the message, that somehow it gives it validity. And there's very few people that you can sit down with and have a rational debate on these matters. We are a dumbed down culture. We have been entertained to death. Teenagers can't function without a cell phone in their hand. We think in 10-minute sound bites because that's what we hear every night, or that's what some people hear every night on the news. There's two great books, and I, uh, throughout this, I will reference the material. And if you want to read, but Neil Postman wrote the book, um, um, uh, uh, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, great book. And And then Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind, great books to read if 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 we still read. now, th- tonight, let me begin. Let me begin with the roots of social justice. where 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 did where did this come from? Because that's the loudest philosophy that is being preached by the world today is social justice. And if you've heard that phrase, maybe you've heard phrases like um, uh, equality, white privilege, critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, all of that goes together. And you may not be aware of those terms, but if you are aware of those terms and what they mean, then you already see how that it permeates every corner of our world. And and to debate this, you start with your back to the wall with a disadvantage, and here's the reason why. The enemy is allowed to dictate the terms. Whoever defines the terms begins with an advantage in the argument. So when you consider social justice, if you oppose social justice, does that mean that you are for social injustice? Wouldn't that be the opposite? Who could be against? Who could be against social justice? And all of us would say tonight that we believe in equal opportunity, equal rights, equal justice. I want to live. In a society where the rich, the poor, the black, the white, it doesn't matter. Where where, where the law is just and fair to all men. So what could possibly be dangerous about social justice? Well, as we will see, social justice is not social, and it's not justice either. So, so, So where do we begin? Because it seems to have exploded on the world stage in the last year or two, but really the seeds of everything that you're seeing was planted many, many years ago. The cultural revolution that is sweeping our nation is not a spontaneous uprising. It has been planned, and it sounds like conspiracy theory, but it's not. It's well documented in the writings of the leftists who promote this. And to understand what is going on around us I think that we have to go all the way back to a man whose name you'll be familiar with, Karl Marx. Because social justice philosophy is called cultural Marxism, and I'll explain that. But to understand how cultural Marxism and classical Marxism are different, you have to see how they are similar. A Karl Marx, history school, you remember, Karl Marx was born in 1818 in Germany. I will skip all of his biography until he makes his way to Paris, France in the 1840s. And when he gets to Paris, France, he meets a guy who's going to become a lifelong friend. His name is Frederick Engels. Now, Marx was a socialist. And so he and Engels began to write and develop a set of laws for what they called was going to be a socialist world revolution. In 1848, he and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, 75-page pamphlet that railed against the establishment and announced a revolutionary socialism that would soon conquer the world. And in that writing, Marx gave two terms, and I'll, I'll have Parker put the definitions up for me, but he railed against the evils of what he called the bourgeoisie, Those are the capitalists, the store owners, those who produce. And then he cast himself as the champion of the proletariat. That's the common worker and the common laborer. I'm not going to give you a history lesson tonight, but here's what you need to know about Karl Marx. He despised capitalism. He believed that in his lifetime, that capitalism would be overthrown, that the world would embrace the wonders of, of communism. He envisioned a world that everybody would live under the banner from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. He believed that capitalism oppressed people, that religion was the drug or the opiate of the people that kept them oppressed. And in his philosophy, he believed that the bourgeois, the elites, the establishment, the store owners, the capitalists, that they had devised a system that kept the proletariat, the common laborer, the peasant down, that they had rigged the system and that the common laborer would never rise to the same wealth or the as what we would call the business owners. And the only way to correct this injustice is by revolution. The peasants are going to have to rise up, throw off their religion, and throw off the shackles of their oppressors. And in order for that to happen, there had to be a class struggle. There has to be a struggle between the haves and the have nots. And Marx believed that when the common man, when the laborer learned how that his masters had fed him a bunch of lies in capitalism, when he learned how that the system was rigged against him, that he would rise up in revolution, that he would overthrow capitalism, and it would bring in the utopia of socialism. And Marx believed that that would happen in his lifetime. Now, if you're thinking, you can probably already see the basic philosophy of that behind identity politics and the social construct of our nation. Our economic system is capitalistic. Thank God for that, by the way. But there is a good chance that your neighbor believes in the most basic philosophy behind Marxism. We are a lot closer in philosophy to Marxism than we probably realize. There is a vast majority of people in our country that is pushing us toward full blown socialism. Now, Marx believed that revolutions were going to happen, he never saw that happen in his lifetime. There is no socialist country where the common man rose up and overthrew the elite and implemented a system of socialism and created a utopian community. That's never happened. Socialism always has to be produced by means of war or slaughter or millions killed. It has to be forced upon a people. So there had to be another way. And this is where I introduce you to a man that you may have heard of. And I think we have a picture. His name is Antonio Gramsci. Now stay with me. Antonio Gramsci is probably the most influential writer that most of you have never heard of. He was an Italian philosopher in the 1900s. He was a, or the early 1900s, was a member of the Communist Party in Italy. Gramsci believed in Marxism, but he realized the common man will never rise up and overthrow his capitalist masters. And there was a reason for that. And he coined a term and he called it cultural hegemony. Now I'm going to throw the definition up there. It is a predominance of one state or social group over another. Now when I explain this, you'll see this everywhere around you. In Gramsci's explanation, the reason why Marxism was not being embraced by the peasant was cultural hegemony, that's how the elites maintain control. What does that mean? It means that since the elites have all the power, they have the ability to control the education, the information flow to the masses, and they use that power to shape an ideology that is designed simply to keep them in power. For example, we would say that if you work really, really hard in America, you can achieve anything. You can become successful. You can become wealthy. If you really work hard, you can become something. But Gramsci said, "No, wait a minute. That's a lie that's part of the system that's built into capitalism. He would say that's not actually true. But the capitalist overlords have told the masses that in order to keep them working for them, it is the carrot dangling on the stick that you never do get to. We, 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 we use that language to keep them hoping, to keep them working, but, but it doesn't work for them. All that it does is just helps to get rich get richer and the poor get poor. That's a part of cultural hegemony that, that built into capitalism is a network of lies that is told by those in power. It is only designed to keep the little man in his place. And Gramsci believed that in order to overturn this capitalistic evil, It has to take place through a cultural revolution. Marx thought it would come through an armed revolution. The peasants one day are going to get sick of it, rise up with their pitchforks or whatever weapons they have, and they're going to overturn it. Gramsci said, no, they're never going to do that. We're going to have to force the revolution through culture. And the only way to do it is from the top down. It'll never be from the bottom up. It is never the common man overthrowing the system. It has to be the top down with the elites overthrowing the system. And what we have to do is we have to infiltrate. We have to infiltrate the schools and the universities and the media, even churches and re-educate people. People are fed lies by a capitalist society. They're too dumb to know it. So we have to re-educate the masses. And this becomes the birth of cultural Marxism. Now, now, you you can read about how it began in Frankfurt in 1923 and and then in 1935, Hitler sweeping through and, and the brainchilds. They come to Columbia University in 1935 and begin the long march through the institutions. And Gramsci believed that through these institutions is how we are going to overthrow this evil capitalist society. And he said in order to do that, insiders must be turned into outsiders. The underdogs have to be made the overlords. The oppressors have to become the oppressed. Those who are privileged have to have their privilege taken away. And if you will think about how you see those things unfolding, you'll recognize it in the language that you hear. Class struggle won't come first by the common man rising up in revolution, no. He's been too indoctrinated by the cultural hegemony that's been preached. So what we've got to do is we've got to educate him. We have to take over the universities and the media, and we're going to teach them the real truth about socialism and Marxism. Marx wanted the common guy to raise up. Gramsci said, the average guy is too stupid to look out for his own interests, so we're going to have to go to the elites. The elites have to fix all of our problems. This is how it begins. Now, 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 let me move on, and I've I've skipped a lot of history, but defining social justice. So so what is social justice? Where, Where does it come from? How does it tie into critical race theory? Because in theory, social justice says that society should be fair to every person. And the way that we make it fair is we have to level the playing field, not just of rights and privileges, this is key, but of outcomes as well. Everyone should have the same privilege. Everyone should have the same opportunity. But everybody has to have the same outcome. Even if we have to force that equality by force, taking it from those who have and give it to those who do not have. Now, if you're thinking right now that that's not right, then you're right. Because a fairer society affords the same opportunity as much as it is able, it is impossible to give everybody the same outcome. The purported, purported goal of social justice is fairness or equity through a redistribution of privileges and goods. Another phrase for it is redistribution of wealth. And if you think about how that underlying philosophy is behind so many Policies, even in the corporate world. So companies have hiring quotas. And so we don't hire the most qualified, but we have to have diversity. So, so we don't have enough Asians or, or enough blacks or enough left-handed people or whatever. We, we've got to balance that out. Or universities have admissions quota. We, we don't want to have a disproportionate number of white students to... Indian-Americans or, or whatever it might be. And so even if we have to lower the standards or, 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 or deny a white child, a, a, we, we have to show that we are inclusive and we have to have more Chinese or whatever it might be. In fact, you will see it even in child's or children's sports. Gone are the days where the spoil goes to the victor. No, everybody gets a participation trophy now. Because it's not just equal privilege or equal opportunity, it is equal outcome. Fairness, fairness has been redefined as justice. That's more important than success or accomplishment. Now, in order to make everything fair, social justice warriors begin with the notion that if you belong to an oppressed group, then you are inherently owed something by the rest of of society. Now, now we'll talk about oppressed groups another time if, if we come back to it. But social justice is built upon redistributing opportunities, privileges, and wealth to all people. No one should have any privilege that everyone else doesn't have. But the only way—the only way—that's going to happen is if you take privilege from one group and you give it to another group, you take opportunity from one group and you give it to another group, and by nature that has to be coerced. So a university has a quota of 20% of their total enrollment has to be in minority students. And so a white student that scores higher or, or, or whatever it might be scores higher on the entrance exam, but we have to spread out the privilege so he's denied entrance and it's given to the minority. That, by the way, is not a racist statement. That's the most basic understanding of how social justice works. And so what's, 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 how do you answer that? Well, let me give you a different perspective. There are people in our world, in our nation, in our neighborhood who are underprivileged, that are poor, that did not have the same opportunity as you had. There are people that are born in very, dire situations. There are people that are born in very affluent situations. And the Bible tells us that as Christians, we are to be charitable toward the poor. We see those in need. And if we have the ability, we should give and we should help the poor. But we don't do it in the name of justice. And it is not the role of government to coerce charity. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, say, thou shalt open thine hand wide and thy brother to thy poor and to thy needy in thy land. Suppose Thanksgiving comes around and we have a Thanksgiving dinner and we invite all of the homeless in Pensacola and bring them in and we provide them a Thanksgiving dinner. That would be a wonderful thing to do. All right, and bring them in, and and give them a a, a gift bag of, of of toiletries and things like that, and we give them a home cooked meal. However, we 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 would do that not because they have a right to our food, not because it is justice. We would do it from the heart of mercy. Social justice says that we should have our food taken away from us and given to them because they are entitled to it. We have an entire welfare state, families who live on welfare for generations, and they believe that it is their right, that we owe it to them. But when you teach one group of people that they're owed something free, and another group of people that they have to give it, that is not social, that is antisocial. It is also called coveting in the Bible. And it does not bring a nation together, it divides a nation, and I contend, that's the goal all along. Somebody said, no, wait a minute, what about equality? What what about equality? When I was in the fifth grade, I had to memorize the entire Declaration of Independence. Had to stand in fifth grade class, and I had to quote the Declaration of Independence. And I couldn't do it now, of course, because that was a long time ago. But the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be of self-evident, that all men are created equal, created equal, and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. All men are created equal. Did you know that there's a lot of ways that men are not created equal? Men do not have equal skill. Men don't have equal knowledge men don't have equal temperaments. So how are men created equal? We are created equal in that we all are created in the image of God. What the theologian would call the imago Deo, the image of God. We are the Bearers, the image bearers of the creator. That is why we don't look down on people who are different from us. Whether it's a different skin color or it's a different nationality or they're handicapped or disability. No, we are all created in the image of our creator. But social justice does not operate on men having a, an equal nature. They view equality only in the terms of outcome. You can't be equal if one is rich and one is poor. Christianity says, no, you're all equal whether you're rich or poor. So the very core of this philosophy is the belief that your true worth, that your true worth is in what you have. That the only equality that matters is do you have as much stuff as your neighbor? And if he has more than you, then we're just gonna have to take it from him and give it to you even if we have to do it by force. This is the philosophy behind social justice. So how does God view equality? How does God view equality? Well, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17, and there's a number of verses I could give you, but Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17 is representative. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. God is impartial to the rich and the poor. He shows no no bias, no partiality. And whatever status you have does not matter to God. It is not what gives man value in the sight of God. The Bible never demands, never dictates for there to be any equality in terms of social status or wealth. And if we come back to the subject, I'll explain to you why it never can happen. It, it, it's a straw dummy. You can never have equality over the masses. Don't have time for that tonight. But but we're already we're already equal in the sight of God. And, and the truth is that that all men are equal as image bearers of God but some do have more privilege than others. Would you agree with me that a child that lives in America already has a leg up on the same child born in Nigeria? All things being even, he already has privilege. Do you know what you credit that to? Divine providence. Psalm 75 and verse 7, But God is the judge. He putteth down one and he setteth up another. 1 Samuel 2, 7, The Lord maketh poor and he maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. I was born with privilege. I was. Every time that I sit down at a table that is loaded with food, I'm reminded of my privilege. Every time that I sleep in a warm bed, I'm reminded of my privilege. Every time that I walk into this church, I am reminded of my privilege. And what social justice wants you to do, wants you to feel guilty about it, wants you to apologize for it. That's why you have white people bowing down before black people apologizing for being white. Do you know what that is? That is unthankful to a great God who gave you that privilege. I don't care what color skin you have. If you have the privilege of living in America, you have a privilege that most of the world would love to have. And maybe one day, one way to get rid, to to lose it, is to apologize for it, to hate it. Maybe God will just take it away himself. So what should you do? Instead of apologizing and feeling guilty for the blessings of God, you ought to be thankful for it and then use it. To bless those who don't have the privilege that you have. Not because we believe that everybody has to be equal. Not because I feel guilty because what God has done for me. But because the love of God compels me to. That's a whole lot better than government coercion. Does the Bible require equality? And One of the subjects that that we need to talk about is how the, this philosophy of equality and oppression has even come into the evangelical church. Every mainline Protestant denomination is preaching this. I mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention. Most of the leaders are liberals who are promoting this. And here's what they do. They use scripture to push a very ungodly and a very dangerous concept. So let me take a few minutes tonight. And I want to highlight just a couple of scriptures that the modernists would use to say that even the Bible promotes fairness and equality and that it is part of the gospel that we preach because social justice has become the social gospel in the church. And I believe that a social gospel is heretical, that it perverts the true gospel of Christ. Take your Bibles. look at Luke chapter 18. Just a couple of passages quickly. And I'll wrap this up. Luke chapter 18. And here's a couple of passages. There's many more, but this is where the social justice warrior in the pulpit would go to. So Luke 18 and verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, that is Jesus, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And when Jesus had heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So those who preach social gospel, social justice, they point to Jesus' instructions to this man, to sell all that he has and give to the poor. So surely Jesus is concerned about the equality of all men. But I would just say that just as Jesus told this man to go and sell all that he had and give to the poor, he never told anybody else to do that. And what Jesus is doing is not highlighting the inequality of one and the privilege of another. He's highlighting the covetousness of this man in his own heart. He is striking at His sin, but his sin is not that he had more than somebody else. This passage is a blow to covetousness. It is not a prescription for social justice. Look one page over to Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus. Jesus entered pastor Jericho. Oh, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus who he was and could not... For the press, because he was little of stature, you know how that Zacchaeus climbed up in a little sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And I don't know the rest of it, but, but come down. Come down to verse number seven, seven. When I saw the all, murmur saying this, that he was gone to be guests with a man of the sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my gives goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything, if I've taken anything, From any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So, So here is the salvation of Zacchaeus, and he says he's going to restore fourfold anything that he had taken dishonestly through his tax business. He evidently was a crooked tax collector, and his repentance for him included restitution. So this story again is used to say, well, the gospel includes helping the poor. We have an obligation to be concerned with the income, the wealth inequality, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor. Again, it has absolutely nothing to do with social justice. This this is not a redistribution of wealth. This is a rightful restitution of money that had been sold. Two totally different things. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'll skip Paul's offering In 1 Corinthians 8, but look in Acts 2. Look at verse 44. And all that believed were together had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold laid them down to the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Look at verse 32. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now that's the favorite passage of those who say that we are obligated to create wealth equality for everybody. Because the believers in the early church at Jerusalem, they sold their land and their possessions. They gave the money to the disciples. The disciples distributed the money to the poor, every man according to his need. Some have even read this as communism. In fact, one liberal theologian that I read after this, he said, "If people wanted to be," he said, "If people wanted to be Christian, then the condition was communism." But he ignores a few pertinent facts. One is that the giving is voluntary. Even, is it chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira? Even when Ananias and Sapphira gave the money that they sold the land, and they gave the money to Peter, Peter rebuked them, but not for keeping some of the money. He rebuked them for lying. They lied about it. They didn't do what they said that they would do. They could have said, hey, we'll sell the land and we'll give 1% of the proceeds to the church. And if they'd have done that, they'd have been okay. It's not that they didn't give enough or they didn't give at all. No, you lied about the issue is lying. So the giving is voluntary. And then another thing is that the giving is by grace. It's not by law. There is no such thing as government or ecclesiastical coercion. They didn't do this out of a sense of justice. They did this out of mercy. And there's so many Bible verses that command us to help the poor. One of the reasons why is the poor are more vulnerable to injustice. Even on a legal system, you can't hire the best lawyer. If you're poor, you're going to get a public defender. So so the poor sometimes are taken advantage of, but justice, true justice is never partial to the rich or the poor. It does recognize that the poor can be taken advantage of. And where civil government, and I'm gonna be done, but where civil government has been ordained by God to be the minister of justice, the church has been ordained of God to be the minister of grace. And I believe that is a fundamental flaw in our system of laws. The Bible never puts the responsibility for charity in the hands of government. Civil government is responsible to punish the evildoer, but it never penalizes someone for having too much or not giving enough. There are criminal penalties for theft, but not for failure to give more. To the poor. Why is that? Because God ordained the state to dispense justice. He ordained the church, you and I, to dispense grace. And though we are talking about society socially, if you think about this, you'll see how it impacts the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, we are not saved by works. We are not saved by merits. It is not because we deserve it. For by grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves is to give to God, not of works. lest any man should boast. Titus 3 and verse 5 uh, 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 For not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy has he saved us. If justification is by works, if it is deserved, then it is not of grace. Paul said that in Romans 4 and verse 4. Now to him that worketh, is the reward and not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Whatever is of justice is not grace. Whatever is of grace is not justice. And when you in a society demand grace, charity, equality as justice, you're disparaging the very grace of God that saves us. Because if we give to the poor out of justice, and we have to be coerced by government to do that, then our grace has become law. And what it does is it ingrains into people's hearts that they deserve something. This is my right. I deserve that this. this is justice. And it blinds them to what they desperately need. It's not justice. It is grace. When God commands justice, we are to do justly. Civil government is to enforce it. When it commands grace, we are to exercise grace. But it is precisely because grace is not justice. And because God has ordained the government to enforce justice, but the government is never to enforce grace. That's not the role of government. Now, that, 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 that's the best intro that I can give to the philosophy behind social justice. And to continue, we'd have to talk about oppressors and oppressed. You're one of the other and, 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 and you have privilege and depending on your makeup, you may have a lot of privilege. I have the most privilege of any party. I am white, I am male, I'm heterosexual, I, ad- I identify with the gender that I was born All of those, by the way, are strikes against me, right? And so so because I had the more privilege that you have, the more oppressor that you are by group identity, then the less morality that I have to speak on these subjects. If you're not homosexual, you don't have any right to talk about homosexuality, right? So I need to be lectured on my privilege, and then it has to be given to the oppressed. You get into inter- I, I I have to stop.